thank you all for being here and we are now moving into the last factor of the um, second portion of the Eightfold Path, the, the fifth factor, which is right livelihood. It's the third in the sila or ethical behavior integrity portion of it. And it's really, um, it's really one that I don't hear a lot. It's, it's kind of almost a postscript sometimes because uh, often there's, there's not really a lot uh, in the suttas about it. The, the Buddha talks about right livelihood, obviously, but um, there's not, uh, it's not really fully um, uh, expressed in particular ways. I know, and a lot of times people, when we talk about right livelihood, they want to say, okay, give me a list of jobs that I can have and give me a list of jobs that I shouldn't have and basically just tell me. And it's really not that easy, apart from a few that the Buddha does um, state explicitly, it's really a way, again, again, another way of being in the world that utilizes the factors that we already looked at, which wise speech, wise communication, wise action, not causing harm, not taking what's not offered, um, being mindful of our sexuality, um, the precepts, uh, you know, the which include also um, uh, uh, not drinking or taking intoxicants or really allowing ourselves to ingest things that lead to heedlessness and dull the senses because when we, our senses are dulled, it's really difficult to be mindful. So it's re the, the Buddha offered a, a, a kind of a large format, but we have to find our way through it. it. And it's impossible to a certain extent to take what the Buddha talked about 2,600 years ago and extrapolate to, okay, which job does that mean now type of thing, like soothsayer. Not not a lot of soothsayers around. Some, well, there may be, but it's not really something that you run across every day. So things like that. So um, it's 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 a much more general much more generality. But there's ways to work within it because you're bringing the other factors in. You're bringing, as I mentioned, right speech and right action, and also right view clarity really cutting through delusion and really being willing to connect with reality and uh, mindfulness, which of course is necessary for the whole path. We have to be present. We have to pay attention. So in the, in the, in the suttas, the monastics were, there's a whole, a whole way of being that's laid out for them. The, the Vinaya is a, you know, a couple hundred, um, rules for monks and 311 or so rules for uh, nuns. I won't say anything about that, except I don't know why it's so lopsided, except I do. Patriarchy. But that aside, anyway, um, so it's much more specific, and monastics are a very different animal, especially in the Theravada tradition, because they go forth into homelessness, and they're dependent on others for for all their needs. Lay people, on the other hand, have to be in the world, and it's very, it's, it's a lot less specific. And the Buddha talked about, he as he did so often, it's like, what is 
you know, what is wise, whatever it is, what is the right way to do things? He says, well, here's the wrong way to do it. Um, and so he talks about that in, um, let me, let me touch on that. It's, um, a lay follower should not engage in five types of business, um, business and weapons, business and living beings or in human beings, basically slave trade or uh, prostitution, business in meat, business in intoxicants and business in poison. Um, to engage in these is to engage in harm. And so, uh, you know, not making a profit, the weapons, not making a profit off of killing because weapons are for killing whatever it is usually. Uh, Business and human beings like the slave trade or, uh, uh, as I said, prostitution. It could also mean larger living beings like animals um, for raising the sale of animals for meat or recreation or um, not engaging in the business of intoxicants is kind of falls in with that idea of um, not ingesting intoxicants, which lead to heedlessness. So those are some really broad categories. And then he also talked about um, not doing things. Well, I mentioned that, that soothsaying. Um, he said also, um, don't practice wrong livelihood or th any jobs that practice deceit. That falls, that's like communication, right speech, treachery, soothsaying, trickery, and usury. You know, any occupation that requires violation of, of, of this right speech, right communication, is or causes harm. So those are really broad categories. There's some that are very particularly specific, but they're um, also broad and they have to be, there are also some suttas that talk about the job you're engaged in, your livelihood should be legal, not nefarious, peaceful, falls right in line with the teachings, um, not coercive or violent, non-harming, honest, Again, this is just reiterating the, the, the precepts or the factors that we've already looked at. Does not cause harm or suffering. So those are different categories that you can, you can use to look at what you're doing in your, in your, um, in your how you make your living. And um, it takes effort. It really takes effort to... Because so many of us have jobs these days that are not involved in weapons manufacturing, we're not involved in slave or, or human trafficking um, or killing or any of those types of things. But we have to really pay attention to how we are, uh, how we are making our living, the company we work for the product it makes or the service it provides. Obviously, if we are involved in something that's really proactively right livelihood, like um, you know, working for a food bank or a, a homeless organization or you know, Doctors Without Borders or a helping profession in some way, shape or form, um, that, that's helpful, but 
if we're just like in an innocuous thing, like I worked for Xerox for years and I spent a lot of time going, okay, this is a multinational corporation. Is there anywhere that it's doing things that are causing harm? And I couldn't find anything, but you know, you, you, um, you work for, now you have these multinational corporations that have so many arms and so many fingers and so many things. Whereas, you know, it's like, um, for example, I was thinking about Amazon last year. I, was it last year? I mean, year before, a year and a half ago, I was protesting at an Amazon store because they have, they have uh, servers that support a lot of, um, Companies, a lot of businesses have their websites and, and um, information on servers, including um, ICE and um, the uh, uh, a lot of things that do facial recognition and um, support the detention centers that um, immigrants are being held in. And so Amazon is really supporting some things that I believe cause harm. So, and, and Amazon doesn't pay its workers really well, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, disparity in wealth and things in Amazon. But I also know that my brother and his wife are um, fairly disabled, and especially during the pandemic, they couldn't get out, and they did a lot of ordering on Amazon. And so it's served a purpose, and so there's, you know, nothing is clean cut. And so we really have to pay attention to what, um, you know, how we show up in the world, where we see harm being caused, what, what, I mean, it's never easy, but we want to make sure we, as much as possible, are moving in the direction of moving away from causing harm and moving towards a more just and sustainable and and fair society because we live in a world we're not we don't live in isolation we live in um, interconnectedness with so many people the rest of the world but we we don't see it because we're disconnected so often from so much of what happens so what is the business you're in and how does it impact you know so that's really um, an important question I've had I've had, um, I was thinking about this earlier and I actually didn't make a note of it, but I had a student once who felt really bad about the way he made a living. He was a stockbroker and he thought it was an awful way to make a living. And I'm like, I thought it was pretty innocuous, but he thought it was causing great harm. So we also have to find out, you know, if, it, if we're suffering over it, that's causing suffering for ourselves. So to really be aware and and paying attention to this um, does your job profit at the expense of others you know um, as I mentioned um, really uh, watching um, any harm that's being caused because as I said we live in this global environment it's really um, it's really important and Thich Nhat Hanh as always, has said some really awesome things. So I just read a paragraph about what he says about right livelihood, which can, again, act as a guide. To practice right livelihood, you have to find a way to earn your living without transgressing your ideals of love and compassion. The way you support yourself can be an expression of your deepest self, or it can be a source of suffering for you and others. 
Our vocation can nourish our understanding and compassion or erode them. We should be awake to the consequences far and near of the way we earn our living. And I think as we get deeper into this practice, it's more and more difficult to stick our fingers in our ears and put blinders over our eyes. We have to really be willing. Oh, I, I know what it is. I had another friend who worked in the oil industry and he wanted to get out of it. He couldn't get out of it at that point in time, but he was a practitioner. I met him through some conferences I went to. And he said, at this point in time, I cannot leave this job because it would mean, you know, disruption of the supporting my family. And uh, he says, but I, they need, they need people like me in this industry. So he was bringing his practice and his, 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 um, his being to where he was working. Not that he's going to change Chevron, but, but with the interactions he was having with the people he was with, he could speak in certain ways. He can talk about things. I have another, I had another friend who was also deep, a, a serious practitioner who worked in the film industry, which if you know, can, it's, it's a really unpleasant place to work. A really, really, really unpleasant place to work. It can be. It can be lovely, but it can be really awful. I live in Burbank, and so it, it's a company town for the film industry. And I've heard horror stories from friends of mine um, about it. And I think a few of you live in the L.A. area, and I'm, I'm sure you've also heard horror stories. Um, so to, But he was trying to bring his practice to alleviate suffering and bring compassion because he couldn't walk away from what he was doing either at that point in time. So we have to really see, okay, if I can't just up and walk away because that would be causing harm, how do I, how do I um, bring these principles, bring this compassion, kindness, love, working towards ending suffering into what I'm doing, into my little world? That's really important. And that, I think, is a piece that really needs to be emphasized because so many people struggle so much over this, going, I'm in this particular job and I should be doing something different. And it's like it may be not the right time to move or make a move and to, but to, to try and walk in a direction that supports these principles and doesn't cause additional harm. So there's, there's that, that, um, way of, of supporting yourself and others in, uh, skillfully and wholesomely. Then when you're actually doing your job, whatever it is, how do you show up? How do you show up for your work? You know, how do you honor the work you do, honor the people you work with, honor the people you work for? You know, there are your actions. Do you give, like they say, 40 for 40, you give 40 hours work for 40 hours pay? Or are you taking what's not offered? Last week when I was talking about right action and one of them is, you know, don't take what's not offered is like, are you taking without giving? It's, it's, it's all reciprocity. We're, it's, we're in this place of reciprocity. So, or, you know, people fudge their expense accounts all the time. It's like, they'll never know. You know, it's the old story of stealing paper clips. They'll never know. It's like, yeah, they'll never know. But the thing of it is, it's what it does to us internally. When we cut corners and we go, eh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. We're starting to live in that place of denial and cutting ourselves off from this practice of integrity. 
And it becomes really difficult when we get into the next session because when you sit down to practice and you close your eyes and all those little things come, you know, up in the back here, oh, I did that. It's not like causing great harm, but it's it's not quite right. You know, the, it's a little fuzzy around the edges, around the ethics of it. And so to really pay attention about how you show up. So how do you treat the job itself? Um and how do you treat the people that you work with? With dignity and respect, with wise speech, wise communication. Um, it's really important uh, to see that um, bigger picture. It's really important. And I was reminded about that, um, you know, the Olympics are going on and, and Simone Biles stepped back from that, which I salute her so mightily for. I mean, that was, but she wasn't all there. and. Again, just like, you know, it's like so competitive and so demanding and it was not, it was causing her suffering and harmful to her. And it was like Naomi Osaka, she's the tennis player, right? That said, I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. It's like, we have to not be sucked in. And this is what, this is where the bigger picture comes in, sucked into the cultural, um, the the cultural zeitgeist that says no you have to do this you have this is part of how it works and it's like who made those rules obviously none of us made those rules you know i, I listened to a talk um, last year about what coloni colonization is and colonizers are the ones who determine what's of value and what's not and and other people be damned and it's like oh wait a minute maybe Maybe I don't have to do it just because everybody's done it. If it causes harm, break, I love my, I have, I have to love this phrase, subvert the dominant paradigm. Subvert it because it causes harm. Just because they do it doesn't mean we have to do it. So it's really important. It's really important how you show up, taking care of yourself, respecting yourself, respecting others. It's so important. It can be scary. It can be really scary because you see already, you've seen the blowback um, towards Simone Biles and, and the, there was the blowback to Naomi and it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. So um, really be willing to hold this, um, this integrity closely and also the compassion and the kindness. That's why all these factors work together. The intention is to be kind. The intention is to let go of things that don't serve. Letting go of a job that doesn't serve. You know, I had, I had to walk away from a job that I, I, I would wake up in the morning and think I'd rather kill myself than go to work. The job was fine. It was just the wrong job for me. And it took a long time to walk away because it's like all the shoulds and the woods and the blah, 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 blah. But I was uh, luckily able to walk away from it and, and save, my, save my sanity, what little there was left. Um, so that's a really important part of livelihood. Um, there's another couple of pieces that are really important as we look at this. And one of them is this idea of um, aestheticism in how we make our living. There's a there's an idea that real Buddhists, you know, drive 40-year-old cars held together with duct tape and, you know, 
live on ramen and uh, whatever. And if you have shiny things, then you're probably a bad Buddhist. And that's not true. Renunciation doesn't mean that. None of us are monastics. Lay, I mean, yeah, we're lay people. Um, renunciation means letting go of what doesn't serve, letting go of what causes suffering. But there's actually, um, uh, the Buddha talked about, what was it, balanced livelihood. And balanced livelihood is a householder, that's us, knows his income and expenses. Knowing his income and expenses leads a balanced life. Oh, one more time, that middle way, a balanced life. Neither extravagant nor miserly, not miserly. Knowing that his income will stand in excess of his expenses, so I have enough to meet my expenses, and then a little bit, and but not his expenses in excess of his income. So you don't live beyond your means. So there's this, again, this middle way, this I have to make a living to meet my needs to support myself, to support my family, to buy food, to pay rent, to put clothes on my back. That is absolutely necessary. Absolutely. And um, so that, I think, is, is, is really important for folks to remember because there is, I'm sure you've all thought that. It's like, not very Buddhist. You bought a new car. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Just as like there's just as there's nothing wrong with desire, it's when it turns into craving or clinging or hoarding. It's a this balanced livelihood is about having what you need and being content. I talked about contentment last week in not taking what's not offered. It's this sense of, oh, I have what I need. We're not hoarding. And let me see. Gregory Kramer in his book talks about this and he says he said the, um, in talking about um, hoarding because this is not about hoarding it's about being content and when we get into this place of hoarding and that's when you have wealth disparities and you know this last week we've been talking about the billionaires in space and we mentioned last week so when is enough enough? Um, and Kramer says, the greater the disparities of wealth, the more ubiquitous and extreme the measures for protecting the wealth. Internal and external toxicity feed each other. So the more we have, the more we think we need, and the more we will do to make sure nobody else gets or takes away. And I think it was... In there, he's in that book, he said there were studies done with millionaires who thought, well, if they just got a little bit more, then they'd have enough. And it changes, you know, it changes our brain. And we it's like this addictive thing. And we're no longer content with what we have. We're continually looking out there. You know, and that's the second noble truth. The cause of our suffering is this craving for something else, something in addition to what we have or getting rid of what we don't like. It's not being at ease with what we have, making sure that our needs are met. It's this, this attachment to this external source of happiness. And when it comes into, you know, the means of wealth and, and, and hoarding, it's, you see 
you see the disparity, you see the suffering, you see the harm that's caused by people clinging and clutching. And no, I've got mine and you can't have any. You know, this, and then the excess spending that goes along with that sometimes, even without having the wealth, but that, that spending to fix ourselves. So many people have that sense of, oh, something else, that'll fix me. Oh, that'll fix me. And it's not the thing. It's just that, that chasing because we'll get it and then it'll be something else. Oh, I have a pink one. I want a blue one. You know, now I need a whole rainbow of them. 14 pairs of shoes or whatever it is you know i jay lono's a nice person but he's got two hangers of cars at the burbank airport you know i can't speak to him internally but externally that's like wow <laughs> that's a lot of cars dude so um we have to investigate our own intentions and have this clarity and see if like oh my goodness I seem to be attached to this can I let go can I not hoard where's that sense of internal contentment this being content with what we have being content with our needs met being content with being comfortable it's enough Sometimes if you've gone without and you realize that so often that 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 fear was in our heads and actually I'm fine. Like when I've left jobs or or taken a job that was a cut in pay and it's like, oh, actually, I'm fine. I don't need that those shiny things or whatever it is. And so, you know, that hoarding that excess spending, it's the root of it is greed, the root of it is craving and lust. And so to watch that, that's what causes suffering. And to that's also part of this livelihood, how we deal with what we make. And um, Kramer, Kramer, I like how he talks about this. He goes, if you want to examine being content, he said, look at the monastics and their model. Monastics in the Theravada tradition are um, they look to the community to support their basic needs, which is food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. So looking at your own lives, this is almost like food. Do you have enough to eat? And then where is your food coming from? We don't know. Do you buy it in the store? Is it ethically made? Is it or harvested or, or what is it? How are you causing suffering? Um, to you know are you eating animals is that causing harm um are you you know buying things that are produced unethically or you know the i mean it's a big question and you try and do what you can investigate how you can in this it's really really important and um because we don't live in a vacuum and Thich Nhat Hanh, again you know sitting down before a meal you know expressing or reflecting on how this food got to your your plate where it comes from the farmers the truckers the people in the grocery store or however it got to you whatever you're eating really being aware of this interconnectedness because it's so easy to operate in a silo we're very we're very siloed in our world and to recognize that we're actually not we're actually not. We're so interconnected. We, we don't even recognize how interconnected we are. 
And then the, the clothing. This is the old Marie Kondo thing, you know. It's like, do I really need this? What, what am I consuming? Why am I buying those 14 pairs of shoes, one in every color? You know, why do I have all this? Um, how are we, how are we, um, how are we believing fashion, what they tell us to buy? Well, it's the new season, so the shorts are getting higher and the, the skirts are getting lower, or the pants are getting tighter, or the jackets are getting smaller, or so oh, this is the color this year, and you can't wear white after Labor Day, so you really need to get a new pair of shoes. And, and we are so locked into these things because we want to be seen in a certain way, or we believe, you know, that, that self-view that we get stuck in. It's, it can be so painful. And there's a lot of class and economic disparity in this, too. You know, I, I, when I was in high school, we didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. And I went to a Catholic high school, so we had a uniform. And on, when I was a senior, the seniors were allowed to wear um, their own clothes the first Friday of the month. So it was like senior day. You could wear whatever you wanted. And I realized I didn't have anything that they would let me wear to school because I, I think I had a pair of jeans. And you were not allowed to wear jeans. And I'm like, I don't have anything. I can't. So I just wore my uniform. You know, so to recognize that, the suffering that even comes when we don't even realize it. This this economic thing, that this class disparity that's so huge that we don't see, but we really need to pay attention to. Um, there's that book, um, I looked it up. It's called Material World, a Global Family Portrait. It came out about, I don't know, 10 years or so ago, where the man, some, a photographer, what was his name? Peter Menzel. He went around the world and photographed, all over the world, and photographed families and their, their belongings. You know, he'd be in Bhutan or Mali, and people would be there with a bunch of bowls and a, a bedroll. And then he'd get to the States and there'd be like this massive amount of crap on the front lawn. Just, you know, it took him days to empty the house and then put it back. So, you know, what are, what are we hoarding? What are we holding that? Do I have way more? Oh, my God. Just looking around this. I mean, these books. Do I need these books? But how hard are they going to get rid of? How hard are they? Do I really need cuneiform? Do I need the Code of Hammurabi in the original? I have it. Do I need it? Anyway, um, so that's a piece. That's livelihood. That's all. This is all part of how we're in the world with our means. And, and then med shelter. Where do we live? How much space do we take up? Do we have a 4,500 square foot house. Do we need it? Do we have enough space? And so these are the things that we're looking at. Gentrification. All these things, you know, um, that cause harm maybe somewhere along the line. Not us out there going around, you know, knocking people out of their houses. But the, 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 the unhoused today, that explosion and this, again, this disparity because of the wealth hoarding and the people who just can't access what's the abundance that's here. And then um, medicine. This is so interesting, the, the, the monastics, one of the four needs, their requisites is medicine. And my brother and his wife, my brother's 79 and his wife is early 70s. He's got Parkinson's, she's got MS, all kinds of health issues. They are moving to Mexico on Tuesday 
to move into assisted living in Mexico because they cannot afford it here. There's such a disparity. There's such a disparity. There's no, there's not access. So how are we living in a way that not necessarily that it's our job to make sure of this, but big picture, again, causing harm. We're not just individual units, but we're part of this incredible mosaic, this fabric. And so livelihood, how do we exist in the world? Really paying attention to what we do. And... Um, seeing the big picture, the chain of cause and effect on, on different things we do. For, you know, flying, I got invited to teach in London and then um, I'm like, I'm ready to go to London. And then I'm like, Dwight, can I do it on Zoom? What's that? What's the footprint? You know, what's the carbon price for me to fly to London? So, and I'm so, I just, I know what I want to go. It's like, so, you know, those kinds of questions. So this can be overwhelming. This can be like, oh, shit, but really, I think it's more a reflection on how we make our way in the world, and really all we can impact is um, what we can do in our own lives. We're not responsible for fixing the world. That's impossible. It's not going to be fixed in our lifetimes. Get that out of your head. So it's not your job to do it all, and it's not going to get done before you die. Um, but what can I do today to have an impact in my world? You know, the, what, what can you do with what you have and the time you have in the space you have? That's it. It's about being aware and taking off the blinders and taking off the... Blinders, I guess it is. Yeah. And and being fully present, focusing on this this recognition of this mutual dependence we have on one another and to, to live in a way that supports others. Um, again, one more time, just with the other factors, ending ending suffering where we see it as best we can with what we have. So thank you, my friends, for uh, listening. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.